0: My name is Larkin McKenzie Ast. I'm a professional in the banking industry and I have two kids, and I want a peak 40 body.
1: Welcome to Peak 40, the podcast that brings you the tips, tactics, and stories for living your best life in midlife. If you are in your mid 30s to 50s, Peak 40 is the place to get actionable advice on the nuances of nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset in midlife. For the full experience and other valuable resources, register for the Peak 40 weekly newsletter at drbubbs.com forward slash peak 40 to enhance your lifestyle and start making the midlife your best life. Hey folks, I hope you're doing well. This is Dr. Mark Bubs, your host for the Peak 40 podcast. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the things that can kill you in midlife. Or to be a little bit more specific, the thing that could kill you in midlife, which is cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is actually the leading cause of death around the world. And more than four out of every five cardiovascular disease deaths are due to heart attack and stroke. Now, the good news is that today, if you're a middle-aged guy or gal, the chances of you having a heart attack are as low as they've been in many, many years. Dropping by as much as 40% over the last 20 years but according to some new research by the American College of Cardiology we're seeing a new trend with victims in their 40s even as young as 20s or 30s rising over the last couple of decades. Now what's going on here? Why is this happening? Well, experts aren't sure that some combination weight gain, stress hitting earlier than normal um, with all the connectivity and everything else we have today, Vaping, right? The incidence of vaping going up in, in younger populations, as well as just ignoring the symptoms. And what are some of these symptoms, some of these risk factors that come up? Well, in this first clip here today, you'll hear from Dr. Fraser Smith, ND, Assistant Dean of Naturopathic Medicine and an Associate Professor at the National University of Health Sciences. He's going to talk about some of the most important behavioral risk factors for heart disease and stroke, which perhaps not surprisingly, are unhealthy diet, physical inactivity, and the use of either tobacco and or alcohol. Now, when we talk about ignoring some of these little risk factors here, this is where you might see in your annual physical. Blood pressure is a little bit higher. Blood sugars are a little bit higher. Maybe your lipid panel is a little off. Now, the key here is that oftentimes, if you're not outside those normal ranges, then It's more of a watch and wait, which is fine. But while your doctor is watching and waiting, you need to be doing something on the nutrition front, the exercise front, sleep stress front. So have a listen to this clip from Dr. Fraser Smith about some of those modifiable risk factors. And we'll circle back at the end of this clip. You know, if we start with cardiovascular disease, I mean, this is the leading cause of mortality in the US, Canada, around the world. And so, you know, to kick off the conversation here, Amongst the population, who is at most risk of cardiovascular disease?
2: Well, it's certainly a disease that is more prevalent the older you know in the elderly or older population. So, uh, anybody over the age of fifty, um, anybody over the age of eighty, it's very it's very prevalent. So, you're looking say in a country like the United States. Um, about 500,000 deaths, say, from cardiovascular disease per year, Uh, and it's similar, kind of similar breakdown per population Mm -hmm. in other industrialized uh, countries. Um, There's some breakdown uh, by um, genetically or by ethnicity, you know, allowing for the fact that those are generalizations, Mm -hmm. those are lumping people together, but there are, you know, there are ways in which that can be meaningful. So with heart disease, um, Hispanic and non-Hispanic whites tend to be a little higher than other, uh, other groups as, as so described. Mm-hmm. And then in uh stroke, uh, African-Americans say in my, my context here, mm-hmm. um, and Hispanics somewhat tend to be a little bit higher as well. Um, the thing I'd like to emphasize, though, is these are typically phenomenon that are years in the making.
1: And and when we look at different populations, if we, if we explore this a little bit more and, you know, again, clients listening in or practitioners listening in, what are some of the risk factors if someone's, you know, in your office or, you know, in their doctor's office around increased risk for cardiovascular disease and some of the modifiable risk factors if we talk about those?
2: Those are the really important things to zero in on. And certainly LDL, which the medical, you know, kind of allopathic or standard medical profession really banks on as their number one target for therapy, that is an exceedingly important factor uh, just because of the weight, the massive weight of uh, evidence linking uh, LDL levels with increased chances of cardiovascular disease. Uh, I have other things to say about that, but it is it is truly a major risk factor. Um, but so is diabetes, and that is a very serious problem. The Centers for Disease Control predicts that by 2040, 2050, one in three U.S. adults will have diabetes. Wow. And that is, you know, incredible to think. We know that um, it's... It's oh, telephonic research, I I think, or survey research, but about a third of the U.S. population is obese if we take body mass index of thirty, uh, which you know you, usually Certain
1: population not a bad marker, right?
2: Yeah, right. You know, there there's people with high lean muscle mass and great strength that maybe have BMIs higher than the guidelines as such, but you know, in the thirties, people usually have a problem and, and that's, that is going to be the big one. High blood pressure, smoking mm-hmm. still in 2020. Yeah, for sure. Smoking. Um, it's interesting because in the tables of, um, or, or, or various, you know, uh, comparative charts about risk, obesity is still considered a minor risk factor. And that is, you know, interesting. That's scientifically interesting, and minor doesn't mean trivial. It just means it's not as tightly or consistently you know, correlated uh, with cardiovascular disease as something like smoking. Um, but it also, you know, points to the fact that there could be differences in people with BMIs of thirty. Absolutely, um, there could be behavioral differences, and so that has always struck me. Uh, it's not a a reason. <laughs> To be obese, and we see people get, you know, um, their diet and their exercise, or house in order, or the morbidly obese go through bariatric surgery and completely change their metabolism, and then their heart disease risk and their diabetes risk plummets. So it's no, it's no trivial matter. But it's interesting that that one stands aside as maybe not as absolute.
1: Maybe we circle back to that standard lipid panel that clients are getting when they go to the doctor, and you mentioned LDL, and I'd like to jump in there in a minute. But let's even start with, you know, total cholesterol, because that was traditionally the marker that's used to assess cardiovascular disease risk. You know, we see that half of the patients who experience events actually have, you know, cholesterol levels that are consistent with the guidelines. So, you know, today is is total cholesterol on its own a reliable predictor of cardiovascular disease?
2: Uh on its own, I think it's unreliable. Um I think it's it's like that strange noise that your car makes, right? It could <laughs> <Nice>. be something <laughs> that
1: <laughs> could be anything isn't
2: gonna cost you a thousand. <laughs> it could be anything, you know. Um hopefully you've got an honest mechanic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> the uh but some but sometimes it is. So it's unwise to ignore. And that's how I see LDL these days, that it's is unwise to ignore it, and it's a fascinating area because it seems like the very high LDL levels in people with strong family history, and then one or two other risk factors, uh, is a harbinger. Is, is you know is is indicating yeah, in 10 years or 15 years, they're going to have heart disease but when we get out of that upper strata of risk when we get out of the the sicker patients or the patients with more you know factors weighing them down healthwise ldl becomes much more fluid type of projection and you know if you ask any cardiologist about that and you know they're looking at doing the, you know in a utilitarian fashion doing the the maximum good mm-hmm. they're going to say hey just take the statin and pound that ldl down it's the ldl stupid
3: yeah, yeah for sure
2: and, it, But it's, it's not that simple a story. So it's worth heeding. But by itself, it uh, really fails. As you say, you know, a lot of people with guidelines, have within guidelines can still have heart attacks. And um, it, it falls short
1: in terms of predicting things, I, I believe, by itself. All right. A few things to unpack here from Dr. Fraser Smith. The first is your total cholesterol number, which really doesn't tell you much of anything about your heart attack risk, so much so the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report indicated that cholesterol is not considered a nutrient of concern for overconsumption. So you don't need to worry about total cholesterol on its own, and to be honest, not many doctors worry about total cholesterol on its own. The story has shifted to LDL cholesterol, and certainly, as you heard Dr. Fraser discusses here, it is intimately involved in the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, that narrowing and hardening of the arteries. And when you're dealing with trying to screen an entire population, hundreds of millions of people, then this is a decent marker. But it doesn't tell you the whole story, and there's more nuance to it when we get to an individual level. In this next clip, you'll hear from Dr. Kate Shanahan, family physician and author of Deep Nutrition, who will discuss additional biomarkers that you actually have on your standard lipid panel that you would get in your annual physical. And that's how triglycerides and HDL, the good cholesterol, two common markers you get on your annual physical that can provide you with a little more insight in your level of health. Dr. Shanahan also touches on familial hypercholesterolemia, that point at which we really do need to worry about that LDL cholesterol being too high
0: yeah so in terms of blood test results when you get your lipid panel it's um what i look at is the triglyceride to hdl ratio and um other two numbers there are your total cholesterol and your ldl cholesterol and those are the two numbers that the drug companies want doctors to pay attention to because they've got a product that will impact those two numbers but um the 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 doctors who practice low carb we don't pay much attention to those at all i I don't pay any attention to the total cholesterol. Um, and I only pay attention to the LDL cholesterol, which is what they call bad cholesterol. Um, unless it's over 190, then I'll you know, talk about family history and see if there's a family history, possibly somebody has something called familial hyperlipidemia. Um, but the other two numbers, triglycerides, are the total amounts of, of fats um, that uh, are come from your diet primarily, that are in your blood, or they can even come from your own fat cells um, in some cases. Uh, But uh, the uh, HDL is the so-called good cholesterol, and um, if you take your triglyceride number and divide it by the HDL number, and you come out with a number that's greater than 2.5, that's a problem, and it means that your, your body is not handling the amount of fat in your blood very well, and it's probably in the process of promoting arterial disease.
1: And too much sugar has a massive impact on LDL as well, correct?
0: Yeah. So both sugar and vegetable oil work together to cause oxidative stress. So it's like a one two punch. Um, You know, both of them are bad, but together they're really bad. And so one of the great things about the low carb diet is that not only do you cut your sugar, but you're, without even knowing what vegetable oils are, you're cutting them out because when you go low carb, Um, you don't just cut out sugar like soda and, you know, candy. But um, the uh, other thing you cut out is the junk food that are full of starchy flours and potatoes and vegetable oils. So going low carb is beneficial, not just because you're cutting carbs and reducing your insulin, but also because you tend to drastically reduce these vegetable oils. And that will drastically improve your cholesterol, uh, numbers. And in many cases, when people have gone low carb and they don't see those improvements, it's because for whatever reason, they're still getting vegetable oils. And, uh, you know, like maybe they go out to eat a lot and they're not eating carb, but they're eating meats and vegetables that have been fried in those oils.
1: All right. You heard from Dr. Kate there. When... LDL levels get so high it becomes a concern for her. And that number is 190 milligrams per deciliter in American units. Or if we look at the international units, that's 4.9 millimoles per liter. And that's when she's going to dig a little deeper and see if there is a family history of hypercholesterolemia, genetically higher cholesterol levels within the family, because that would be a strong risk factor for cardiovascular events. And, of course, that's when medications might be indicated. Now, Kate also touches on the combination of sugar plus fat, which obviously adds a massive amount of caloric intake, which contributes to weight gain, high blood sugar levels, inflammation, and particularly polyunsaturated fats from vegetable oil, which are quite reactive. And, you know, this is what you find in ultra-processed food, right? Stuff that comes in boxes and bags and packages And this stuff is really a problem when consumed in excess. And so, you know, she mentions low carb there. You could perfectly well be on a low-fat diet if you're consuming whole foods, real foods, and still have tremendous uh, cardiovascular health. That's often a dietary strategy that's recommended. So you can go lower carb or lower fat and improve your vascular health, lower your triglycerides, improve your HDL to start to support better vascular health. Now, another aspect of this story is your blood sugar control, your fasting glucose, your HbA1c, that three-month average of your glucose control, as well as the blood sugar hormone insulin. And you can use some, a simple calculation using your fasting glucose again to be able to provide an estimate of your insulin sensitivity. Because as you'll hear from, here from Dr. Richard Moore, And D, there are individuals who have good glucose control, but actually it requires their body to pump out a lot of insulin in order to keep it under control. And those are the folks that oftentimes fly under the radar and are actually at higher risk of things like heart attack. So have a listen here to Dr. Richard Moore, and then we'll circle back and wrap up this episode at the end of this clip. Of course, you you mentioned there the triglyceride to HDL ratio. Can you walk folks through why that's, Uh, important for assessing cardiovascular health.
3: Oh, very good. Um, There is a tremendous volume of research showing that triglyceride HDL is a vastly better metric than uh, LDL cholesterol for predicting who's going to have the next heart attack. Um, It's a standalone risk factor. So it's not that it's related to cholesterol. It stands on its own. It's that triglyceride HDL. If I take it apart to define it, to me, it's the it's the internal metabolic leanness that someone's carrying in their bloodstream, right? Their, their internal systems, we can look at body fat percentage analyses and I, I use the low-tech skinfold calipers in my office. Um, they're Fantastic. incredibly, incredibly valuable because it doesn't only tell me, tell me the total body fat percentage, it also tells me where it is. So if someone's higher on their triceps, I might have them tone more. If someone's higher at their core, I'm gonna have them lower their carb more. Um, It helps me steer diet versus exercise emphasis. Um, But getting that number, the triglyceride HDL should match it. If someone's carrying high central obesity, I'll probably see a triglyceride above 100, um, you know, 100 milligrams per deciliter. The slightly more complex calculator is that HOMA-IR. HOMA is not very important for most people. That's the method that the test is done. Um, uh, But the IR refers to insulin resistance. right? And that's the calculation to quantify insulin resistance. The reason this calculator is helpful is to find those people who have wonderful glucose control because their pancreas is in overdrive. Right. They're they're producing very high insulin and conventional medicine is every conventional practitioner is using the type two diabetes and prediabetes metrics. Their only metric is glucose. Right. They're they're fixated on hyperglycemia being the definition for when type two becomes an issue. But many people are, I'd say, about of all the type twos, about 40% of them are hyperinsulinemic. They produce a lot of insulin to help them get their glucose in check. So these are people who are putting on abdominal body fat. They're people who have high liver enzymes because they have excess liver in their uh, excess fat in their liver. Right, That high triglyceride will be in their blood profiles. They'll have a low HDL because the liver's congestion in its normal function, um, presumably because of the fatty liver disease. Um, so they're being blamed by their doctor for putting on weight, putting on abdominal body fat, and if they don't watch it, they're gonna get uh, pre-diabetic. The fact is, they're already essentially pre-diabetic, even though their fasting blood sugar is a perfect 88. But their insulin is going to be 12, 14, 16, it's going to be well above 10. So that high insulin, if you run it in the calculator, insulin times glucose divided by 405 gives us this number. The goal is to have it as close to one as possible. Two, three, four, five are not uncommon insulin levels on a fasting blood test. Um, and this is in, I'm I'm using this in uh, US terms. I, what we're talking about here when I say, um, let me do a Quick, It's going to it's generally that uh, time six, right? So uh, an, an insulin of um, Three when I say that's kind of the lower side of healthful insulin, that's an 18 picomole per liter Perfect. Right? So my my systemic internationals, um, I generally want to see it below uh, 50 in the international units Sure the um, you know, glycosylated hemoglobin, we call it the hemoglobin A1c. It's a calculation from that. We use the percentage in the U.S. So uh, your U.S. listeners are going to be looking for anything below 5.7% as the non-pre-diabetic level. Um, that is uh, below 39 millimoles per mole, um, uh, international units. So we generally want to see that in that lower range. It's pretty common to see the pre-diabetic Pattern in someone, and this sometimes shows up when I'm first treating someone with a very low carb diet. Their insulin will drop, and temporarily their sugars will go a little higher. Um, this is uh, this was actually my family effect. This was the um, I'm from a family of thin diabetics, so we tend to not be the obese type. We tend to produce lower insulin, but we have body tissues that are insulin resistant. So we'll have low insulin hyperglycemia. So in my early forties, when my um, hemoglobin A1C was up at about 6.1%, which is right in the middle of prediabetes, this is a number of, uh, let's say 42, 43 millimoles per mole for international units. you know enough where it opened my eyes my mother was type 2 diabetic at 60 years old so it was strong in my family even on my father's side it showed up so um i had to address it actually by building muscle mass so when i saw that high blood sugar but the low insulin and my fasting blood sugars were just slightly high they were just over 100 um milligrams per deciliter um so my, my treatment was to correct my A1C, was actually to build more muscle mass, um, to work out not by running and biking. you know I had to give up my triathlon days and uh, go to the weight room more.
1: So what have we learned from this episode? Well, the basic tests that you get on your annual physical do tell you a whole lot about your health and obviously your disease risk without having to spend hundreds of dollars on extra tests to be able to tease out where you stand. Now, of course, your first goal is to be inside the normal range. Once you've achieved that, it is, however, important to know where you are inside that range. Are you in the upper normal side of things? Because if you are, there's still some work to be done. And this becomes important because you can then begin to compare yourself year to year as you try to move toward better health and away from that disease risk by getting toward the middle part of that range. The great news here is that the most powerful tools for lowering your triglycerides, improving your blood sugars or blood pressure or lowering inflammation are diet, exercise and lifestyle. So as we wrap up season one here, and if you've been with us since episode one, we've touched on many simple strategies, evidence-based strategies to start moving things in the right direction for you without having to overhaul your life or completely transform your behaviors, right? Doing this slowly drip feeding it in is really how you can achieve that longer term success. Things like getting the right breakfast in, cutting out the mindless snacking, avoiding that late eating consistently throughout the week, adopting some time efficient exercise strategies, ensuring adequate sleep. And of course the biggest rock, which is mindset, Just having that long view of things, right? Give yourself a year. Try to stack on the little wins over time and be okay with slow and steady progress because ultimately that's the type of progress that leads to you building the right habits and building the right behaviors, which leads to you being able to do these new behaviors on autopilot. Right, That's ultimately the goal. You don't have to think about these new behaviors, these new habits. They're just ingrained to how you live and how you move and how you eat, etc. Awesome. Well, listen, that's a wrap on season one. We'll be back this fall with a whole new season two, targeting some of the common conditions we see in midlife. So if you want to take a deeper dive from any of the guests that you've heard on the show so far in season one, head over to drbubs.com forward slash podcasts, Click on the episode and you'll see the links there to the long form interviews. You can also check out my best selling new book, Peak 40, or for a more in depth support, our online Peak 40 Nutrition Coaching course. And for those who'd like a bit more one to one support, we do have our fall Peak 40 Nutrition Coaching Group that will be launched September 13th. So keep your eyes out for that. You'll get all the updates and info with our Peak 40 weekly newsletter. Last thing, don't forget, Send over your questions on social media, on Twitter and Instagram using the hashtag Peak40. Happy to answer those, include them in future episodes. And if you can take two minutes to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge, huge benefit to the show and greatly appreciated. Awesome. Have a fantastic summer. We'll see you this fall.